welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm Marva Hinton. Today we're at the Miami Book Fair with National Book Award winning author Jacqueline Woodson. Her memoir in verse, Brown Girl Dreaming, won the award for young adult literature in 2014. And this year, her novel, Another Brooklyn, was a finalist in the fiction category. You can find out how to win a free signed copy of Another Brooklyn on our website, readmorepodcast.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Through flashbacks, Another Brooklyn covers the story of four friends growing up together in Brooklyn during the 70s. August, Angela, Gigi, and Sylvia look out for one another in a world that isn't always safe for girls. Um, They support each other from grade school to high school when their bonds begin to unravel. The story is told from the perspective of August, who's come to Brooklyn from Tennessee with her little brother and their father. This move comes following their mother having a mental break of some sort after the death of her brother in Vietnam. So much has been made of the fact that this is your first novel for adults in 20 years. Why did you decide you wanted to write for adults again? Um, You know, it's interesting. I had written Brown Girl Dreaming, and then it went on to win all the awards that it won. And it was a memoir. And when I was writing it, um, I was writing about my childhood home of Brooklyn. Um, and, And at the same time I was writing about it, the neighborhood Bushwick was really changing. And I kind of was taking notes that would become another Brooklyn. And I knew once that book did all the things that it had done in the world, Brown Girl Dreaming, that I wanted to just kind of step out of the narrative of young adult literature for a minute and try something new. I mean, when I wrote Brown Girl Dreaming, I was trying to do something new by tell, write a memoir in verse. And then um, when I wrote another Brooklyn, I wanted to kind of marry the poetry and the narrative and also um, the intersection of biography and fiction. So um, Another Brooklyn was that book, and I knew I wanted to write it from an adult perspective. Well, lots of adults loved Brown Girl Dreaming, and I imagine that a lot of teens could appreciate this novel. So what is the biggest difference for you as far as how you approach a book when you're writing it for adults versus the YA audience? (laughs) <laughs> so one thing is um, I'm very shy about sex when I'm writing for YA, and I feel like when I'm writing for adults, I can put a lot more sex in it. And even though I have writer friends like Gail Foreman, who's the opposite, she says uh, she just wrote an adult book, and she says there's a lot more sex in her young adult stuff. Um, but also, it's more implicit. I feel like in writing uh, from an adult perspective, I'm having the adult meet me halfway with their experiences. When I'm writing for young adults, I'm writing from the from a young adult age, right? So the the um, protagonist is 15 or sometimes 11 or 12, and I'm writing and having the reader meet me at that age. And and young adults haven't been adults, so they can't meet me from that perspective. But in um, another Brooklyn, because August looks back on her childhood, they can they can understand that a lot more. The novel is written so beautifully, and it's just so much like poetry, even down to the way it looks on the page, you know, with the paragraphs set off with the blank lines. For me, this had the effect of forcing me to slow down as a reader and really linger over passages. Mm -hmm. 
was that the intended effect? And are you always writing poetry, even when you're not writing poetry? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, it's it's very intentional, right? The use of white space is very intentional, and it is for that purpose of like, don't rush through this. This is I want to evoke that dreamlike narrative. I want you to stay in the moment when I wrote this paragraph. I and I put um, to all of this white space between this and the next paragraph is because I want you to spend some time with that paragraph before traveling to the next one. And I read a lot of poetry. I think sometimes very poetically and and I'm very intentional especially about the words being as strong as the narrative and and striking that balance where I'm trying not to overwrite so that I'm so in love with my language that a, a reader can't move through the story and so I'm try I try to stay away from adjectives and, and be very clear and pace myself so that the reader can feel the book the way I felt it and can read it the way I intended it for it to be read. So that does involve really sometimes short sentences, sometimes longer, more um, meandering sentences when I'm kind of trying to when I'm trying to invoke a certain mood um, and just quiet moments where I'm asking the reader to just rest and stay and contemplate the moment. A lot of this book is about memory and how memories shape us. Your narrator, August, is looking back on her childhood, and at one point she says, I know now that what is tragic isn't the moment, it's the memory. Mm -hmm. What is it that makes the memory the greater tragedy? When you're in the moment, you're not necessarily in the moment or really being able to deconstructed the way you can when you look back on the moment. And and a lot of times looking back on certain points in my life, I, I do so with a lot of melancholy for the missing of that moment and also for the um, information I have now that I'm older that and being able to look at that moment and see what I couldn't see as a child. So I think that's where that line what is tragic isn't the moment, it is the memory comes in because it is the tragedy of that moment being lost. It's the tragedy of not knowing what to have done in that moment. It's the tragedy of not being able to um, live in that moment again. Um, and then also it's the tragedy of being able to see what that moment really was. This novel feels like a real celebration of black girlhood. I mean, the girls support each other and they try their best to protect each other. They build each other up when others are trying to tear them down. And for August, this went against what her mother had told her about women, that they weren't to be trusted and you couldn't really be friends with them. But in the end, August was betrayed by someone she thought mm -hmm. was a good friend. Do you think August would now say that her mother was right? <laughs> I don't know. I think, um, no. I think because she was able to have such an experience with those four girls and because it informed her and changed her, um, I think she would not have said her mother was right. I think the fact that her mother said that made it easier for her to break up with her friends as opposed to exploring truly what happened because she had her mother's backstory of don't trust women. So when what happened happened, she's like, ah, you know, 
this is what I'm supposed to do now. Um, and I think if she had gotten a more positive message with her from her mother, it would have been different. But she still had Angela and Gigi, and um, and in some ways Sylvia, even though she didn't have Sylvia, but she had what she had learned from Sylvia. And if Sylvia hadn't come into her life, she wouldn't have been an anthropologist. Because what she was saying, one thing she says in the book is, no one had that dream for me. When her, Sylvia's dad is saying, be a lawyer, and August starts questioning why is it someone who's economically privileged and has all of um, um, this kind of backstory, the one who gets the promise of a future? Why can't I, you know, this poor kid from Tennessee, get that promise? And she really began to um, challenge that. And also, um, and Sylvia gave her that strength to challenge that. And they all gave each other that strength. And it's definitely a love song to black girlhood. <laughs> I mean, I love being black. I love being a girl. I love being a woman. I love having this daughter who is um, in so many ways so beautiful and so brilliant and so magic. And and um, and I, it makes me sad that the world doesn't know this and ex that a lot of the world doesn't know it, even as we know it ourselves. So, so it's kind of like... For me, this conversation with other women of color, and it's also a conversation to the world about visibility. Before that betrayal, the girls really had this whole strength in numbers thing for a long time. I mean, boys didn't know how to deal with them, this confident group whose members often rejected them. Um, to protect themselves for a while, the girls even carried blades in their knee socks and grew out their fingernails. But as your narrator says, Brooklyn had longer nails and sharper blades. Mm -hmm. Is there a message here about the girls' ability to take on a world that was in so many ways against them? Yeah, it's uh, it was a heartbreaking scene to write. Um, when they long lost their blades. Because even when they thought they had this protection, the world was coming in. And um, and it was, a, it was a fragile point for them because it was a point where they were start, starting to second guess their power. Um, I think in some ways they grew out of that, but it was a moment for me in the writing of it where I saw them begin to falter in a bigger world. And as the author, my choice was to go either way. Do I lift them up and, and, and continue them on their hero's journey and you know, let them bring home the elixir, or do I let them fall and have that kind of brokenhearted ending? And so the way I, I, I it's a very nuanced ending right because some of us fall some of us fall and some of us don't and and when august is at brown and she sees angela on the television and she says she made it and at that point august isn't even aware that she's made it too and that sylvia's made it we learned that from the beginning of the book we see sylvia and she's you know looking very professional and beautiful and and she's aged um in a certain way um so three out of the four have made it and even Gigi in her short moment had made it um, so so just kind of trying to create that narrative where I'm showing the way the world is kind of pushing against them and they're and they're faltering and then they're getting back up and they're calling out to the boys and showing their strength and even August and recognizing looking back and saying they didn't they didn't understand girls together they understood girls alone you know folding their arms across their chest praying for invisibility um, as an adult is realizing 
that that's the, the power that wasn't taken away from them. You explore religion a bit in this novel and how it treats girls. You know, in the Christian faith, your narrator speaks on John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And she asked, But what about his daughters? And later on, her dad is approached by a man who's a member of the Nation of Islam who looks at her, looks at her bare legs in a way that feels very lecherous to me and says, You're a black queen. Your mm-hmm. body is a temple. It should be covered. Mm-hmm. There is another character who warns about pastors and altar boys who take indecent liberties. Did you want the reader to look at these passages and consider the limited number of safe spaces for your characters? Yeah, because I think it's true, sadly. Um, you know, we have the shoe store. We have the shoe, the guy in the shoe store. We have the guys on the street. We have the um, the um, don't trust the priest if you're an altar girl, if you're the only altar girl. Um, and, and I think there is this assumption that there are places where girls can go to be safe, that these are the assumed safe place spaces, and that's not always true. And I think every girl in our country and in many, many countries will be able to speak to this. Um, and looking at the numbers of three out of four girls um, experience some form of sexual misconduct or abuse by the time they're 18, and that those numbers are girl, are, are the ones that get reported, are the ones that are known, so we don't know. And, um, and having this conversation about girlhood with other people so many women are like, yeah, yeah, you know, for me, it was the guy at the candy store. For me, it was my uncle. For me, it was um, the, you know, the um, choir director, or whoever it was, and showing that kind of um, juxtaposition between what is considered holy and untouchable and at the same time very um, just um, dangerous for young girls. And I'm not even talking about young boys at this point. I'm talking about this uh, experience that young girls have in our country and even that of the gays, right? The way our visibility, our growing up is so visible to the world and the world is watching. So these girls say, you know, when August talks about they, they were moving their heads in a way that sent messages they were not old enough to understand themselves so that people are looking at them in this way that the gate, the person who's looking is making assumptions that the girls just don't even know what to do with because they're young. August grew up to be an anthropologist, you know, as you've mentioned, who, and she studies rituals related to death. Throughout the novel, you sprinkle passages about some of these rituals. And I found these to be really interesting and in some cases a little disturbing. Why did you decide to include them? If you read, uh, they each time I add a ritual, it has something to do with the section you've just read. So at one point, um, I'm talking about Jenny's children and and them being taken away by the state and that you know just kind of the tragedy of um, this neighbor's two young children and the neighbor's a heroin addict. And at the bottom, it's the ritual um, where at one of the countries in Africa, um, they dig a grave when the child is born. And so here are these children that you kind of have a sense are not going to make it in the world. But And here's what happens in Africa with those children. And another um, one, um, the de- at the early on, I talk about um, the Cavendino people who 
uh, don't bury, they don't acknowledge that they're dead or dead until they can afford to bury them. So they basically keep them in their house, they have them at the dinner table, or they dress them in their rooms and um, take them on trips with them. Um, and so that we, we find out why she points to someone who can't acknowledge that they're dead or dead because of what we find out about August herself later on. So that's why um, I put those rituals in there. They, they do correlate with what's happening in the narrative. And I also wanted to, when you're reading the book, you see that August has been living this kind of anthropological life her whole life. She's kind of been on the outside studying this existence rather than being a part of it and then finally is able to step into it and then steps right back out and goes on to become an anthropologist for real. Well did writing that require a lot of research on your part into these rituals? It did and it was fascinating. <laughs> I, I, I got lost and uh, I mean I, 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 my, I got to the point where I, ha I have a lot fewer rituals in the book than I found out about, and I'm still finding out about them. And it, it so it was not only researching the rituals, but also researching Bushwick, because I knew what I remembered about Bushwick as a child, but I didn't know if my memory was true. Um, so then going back to the Brooklyn Historical Society, reading articles about the neighborhood. Um, so the, the researching those two things, and researching what was happening in the 70s, what took a lot of time. As I was reading, you know, these rituals, um, it also made me wonder if these rituals were missing for some of the characters when they experienced loss. And maybe that was why things were so difficult for them. Is that something that you considered as well? Well, I considered the way our country deals with death in terms of someone dies and you get a couple of days to grieve and you're supposed to be yourself again. And I think when someone close to you dies, some part of you dies with them. And that's its own ritual and grieving that has to um, be accounted for and we don't account for it. And we also, so there's a way in which we don't allow people to grieve. There's a way in which we don't acknowledge who the dead truly are, you know, either they go into the ground or they go to heaven or they go to hell. But if we really took time to think about these people who are connected to us in this deeper way, what does it mean when they move on to the next place? How is that connection broken or how does it change? And so I was, I was very interested in talking about that. So what are you working on now? So now I'm back to young people's literature. I'm working on a picture book and I'm also working on a middle grade book. I don't know what it is yet. It's going to be something hopefully interesting, but I'm figuring it out. <laughs> and what are you reading these days? Uh, so I, I just started Zadie Smith's Swing Time, which is phenomenal. Um, I, I loved Here Comes the Sun, Nicole's book. Um, I loved um, Britt Bennett's The Mothers. I, I just finished that for the second time. And also um, We Love You, Charlie Freeman by Caitlin Greenwich phenomenal. Uh, and then to my son, who's eight, we are reading Ghost by Jason Reynolds. Okay, well, Jacqueline, thank you so much. Okay. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. Please go to our website, readmorepodcast.com, to find out how you can win a free signed copy of Another Brooklyn. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together when our guest will be Caitlin Greenidge. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more. Thank you.